0: Welcome to the Diverse Economies for Youth podcast. As part of the Dice Collective, our unique podcast connects scholars and leaders in feminist political economies to youth who envision an alternative world that treats them as people instead of as prophets. Inspired by the Kumbayi River Collective by African-American women in the 1970s, we invite you to listen along with an open mind and a hopeful heart. I'm your host, Serena Bahador at the University of Toronto Scarborough. And welcome back to another episode of our podcast. I'm happy to have with us Dr. Beverly Mullings to discuss the importance of taking a stance on ethics and economic exclusion in today's global economy. Dr. Beverly Mullings is a professor of political economy at the University of Toronto. Since obtaining her PhD in geography from McGill University, her work as an economic geographer has always highlighted the importance of voice. As a professor, a person, and DICE Collective member, Dr. Mullings is conscious of the voices she highlights in her writing and teaching. She strives to show her students, her communities, and the world the diversity we need to embrace when considering our perception of the economy. And therefore of our future. In fact, she was recognized by the American Association of Geographers in 2017 when she received the Susan Hardwick Excellence in Mentoring Award. This is a testament to her desire and leadership towards guiding the growth of those who come after her. Additionally, Dr. Millings is a huge advocate for mental health in and out of the academy, currently co-chairing the Association of American Geographers Mental Health and Academy Affinity Group. Dr. Millings, welcome. I'm so glad we could finally have you on the podcast.
1: Hello. Hello. This is lovely and I'm really happy to be there. And, and thank you for your lovely um, introduction.
0: Always! You know I was always looking forward to having you here and one of the most important aspects of our conversation today is its timing. You've been published in countless journals for your work on capitalism as a structure, as a racist force that is constantly evolving and how resistance against it is indispensable. In these recent years and months and days it's becoming increasingly apparent that the economy is something that's evolving away from considering us. But if there's anything that we discuss on the Diverse Economies for Youth Podcast. It's the multiplicity of economies that are out there. Should we dare to engage with them? And the multiplicity of mindsets that are out there too. Should we also choose to engage with those? We know that economics could and should be way more inclusive, but it's hard to comprehend what that really means and what to do with it. As a feminist, how would you define inclusive economics? And when economics are instead exclusive, how do we know when we should take a stand against that?
1: Okay, so what's what's inclusive economics? I mean, it's a term that I don't know how many people know. I, it's not one that rolls off the tongue. It's not talked irregularly, but, but an inclusive economics is an, a type of economics and attentiveness to creating a world where each person has an opportunity to live their best life. And so that term inclusive economics signals a kind of collective responsibility that we all have to socially reproduce ourselves in the the best way. Um, When people talk about inclusive economics or an inclusive economy, many tend to focus on maximizing full and fair access to the market economy, either as entrepreneurs Or as consumers but rarely do people question the assumption that the economy is always the market economy and i think that's what the dice collective tries to do to talk about other types of economies that are not necessarily market-based economies and and what we can learn from looking at these kinds of economies about how to think differently about collectively you know, creating our best selves. So yeah, the market economy for me is just one set of values, just one way that we could organize how we live with each other. And ultimately, which I think is what members of the Dice Collective do as feminists, we need to constantly, and we do, ask the question, what is an economy for? Why do we have that? And, you know, I think as feminists, one of the things that, that we are reminded of is that an economy should be a system through which we manage, as a society, our collective resources. And that we should recognize that how we do that, how we produce an economy, and how we produce ourselves... Are actually intimately connected. So if we only understand the economy in the way that it popularly is given to us, that the market economy is such that it is continually growing, it produces wealth um, based on the sale of commodities that are produced by private owners of capital. If that's how we understand the economy, then we're going to Exclude a number of people; those who are either excluded by choice, or excluded historically, or excluded um, because the system itself thrives upon their exclusion. And I, I'll try and s- explain some of that in more detail in a little bit later. But really, I think if we think about a feminist approach to inclusive economies then we have to think about how the one that we have the dominant market economy how it excludes particular populations particular communities um how it devalues the wealth of particular communities um and and most importantly and this is something that we we are only now realizing we need to pay more attention to how it also devalues the environment that we live in. So we need a whole new language, I think, and a way to think about economies. And that's, I guess, part of what the inclusive economies, um, literature, those who study it, that is what the effort is to try to remind us that we've had actually 30 years of a discourse that's, that has made us distrustful of any other kind of economy than the market economy, it's made us distrustful of thinking collectively about how we organize ourselves, because we've been told that to think about all things related to the public is a danger or a threat to our individual freedoms, and that's simply not true. Thank you so much
0: for your explanation, Dr. Mullings. That was beautiful. I love, honestly, all of your answer, but I love the way you said, um, asking these questions, what is an economy? And considering how the economy impacts, you know, our social reproduction, our perception of self, the environment, um, everything, really. And... I love the idea of questioning what is an economy because it's all about that critical thinking. I think what an economic structure like our current one banks on is assuming that we think we can't do anything basically bullying us into thinking we can't do anything about it right thinking we can't say anything that our words our votes don't matter Um, again back to this idea of voices our voice is something that we can always count on because even when we're silenced there's still someone in some place in the world who can hear us As a black woman, an academic, a DICE member, a feminist, it's unmistakable what you believe in. I remember I read one of your papers. um, It was called, I think, Racial Capitalism, Coloniality, and the Financialization of Caribbean Remittances, which I found really moving. Um, You really do get your point across that you don't want anyone anywhere to be considered an afterthought or a surplus population. When capitalist economic systems, like the one we're familiar with, maintain their hierarchy and that exclusion of certain groups like you talked about, how do black feminist activists and scholars push back against that? How does the DICE Collective
1: do this work? You know, as a black woman of Caribbean heritage, really committed to the Caribbean region and the Caribbean diaspora, what is very clear is that one of the ways in which we struggle to to appreciate and to live to help people live their best lives is by remembering the histories of how we've how we as as um black populations in the region historically at the foundation of the very beginnings of capitalism were rendered Exploitable, um, disposable, and ultimately as commodities for sale as well. And by, by that, I'm talking about the very long history of of capitalism itself. That is a racial history. Um, Cedric Robinson reminds us that you know when we think about capitalism, if we put that word racial at the forefront, we'll understand that. Racism and capitalism are co-constituent forces. They come together and they come together from the history of the formation of what we call the modern world and And that formation, you know, begins with the contact between um Europe and the Americas. It is the beginning of a type of way of organizing ourselves remnants and elements of which we actually still live today that is guided by a focus on um, creating commodities for which profits can be made. It starts with the Americas. It starts with places like the Caribbean in the pursuit of commodities like the sale of sugar or the pursuit of commodities like enslaved and trafficked peoples to the Americas. It begins with the Dispossession of the land of indigenous peoples in the Americas. So, as a black feminist, thinking about the economy necessarily makes me have to think about the making of capitalism as a type of, and only one type of, economy. But one that we have lived with for so long that we've forgotten that there were other types of economies. Or we, or we denigrate the value of other types of economies. We call them primitive, we call them pre-capitalist, we call them feudal. But in actual fact, there are some good lessons to learn when you look back at history, When you look back at that moment of the beginnings of the way in which today we have a far more sophisticated way of doing it, but it boils down to the same thing. We rely on a few people with private ownership to purchase or to make possible the production of commodities, the sale of which produces profits for some and excludes others. And that is at the heart of the kind of economy that we have at the moment. So, you know, thinking about all of that as a black feminist allows me at least to to not just look back, but to look forward. What tools have we had as communities when we were property, even after we were emancipated and no longer property? How, what tools did we use to overcome the kind of exclusion and the kind of expropriation or exploitation or dispossession, if we want to call it that, that was endemic to the way that capitalism worked, and that many people who were racialized as black got caught in in that that kind of process. so um, as a black feminist, one of the things we know is that the system of capitalism, even as it rendered um, particular communities to be racial racialized communities or surplus populations that could be exploitable. At the same time, people tried to hold on to their humanity by holding on to a couple of things that kept us together in community, some of which included reciprocity, some of which um, included solidarity, and a major part of which included care. And so I think um, black feminists in particular pay attention to the way that capitalism with its creation of commodities, with its reliance on waged and unwaged labor or paid and unpaid workers, the way in which that system takes away our capacities to look out for each other is the very way in which Black feminists try to rebuild those communities. And in the DICE Collective, a lot of the work around um, systems by which people collectively Create resources. It says significant pushback against the weight of that history, and I hope that was clear enough.
0: No, that was co- so clear. It was poetic. I love the way that you explained that. You know what? The way that things were once taken from us is the same way in which we build it back and form a community, um, and. That that just goes to show there's always a history of something. There's a history for everything. And that history is part of what informs DICE and its mission. And it's all its members. It situates DICE as part of a long legacy of Black and racialized economic cooperation, social justice, care, reciprocity, all these values you mentioned. And to me, the perfect word to use really is collective because it helps you see the vision, hear the voice. When one person speaks, you know it's on behalf of Everyone, and then when everyone speaks together, there's no mistaking that. Collectively, taking a stand is what magnifies our power and shows everyone how much farther you can get with your community behind you. But in a highly individualized system, we're not trained to think this or embrace this. So in your career as an academic, why do you find that it's important for academics to even take a stand? How have Black feminists stood up against uh, structural economic violence on the global stage, for example, as we see in Gaza?
1: There's a couple of things that I've read in my lifetime that have really had an impact on me, one of which is a interesting book by Fred Moten and Stefano um that tells us that the university is a space with a lot of resources, and that it's also a space that historically was not meant for people like myself, you know, people who are racialized, people who were poor, and that we know from their writing that our duty, if we're in these spaces, is to make use of the resources here, and those resources It is our access to a voice, uh, our access to books, our access to infrastructures that allow our voice to be heard. One of the things that we really have to hold on really hard to is our academic freedom. And at the moment, that is under threat by events around the world, but in particular, what is happening in Gaza and the occupied Palestinian territories. As feminists and academics, we know that we have a fairly privileged position. We're able to have our voices heard. But to be honest, our voices alone actually mean very little. We have to work collectively. And this is the whole, I think, point of a DICE collective. And as you said, to think collectively, to work against the grain of what A free market economy tells you that you, the individual, should be the person who tries to advance your own um, agenda, that individuals should work towards holding their own freedom. As a black feminist in the academy, what is very clear is that we need to work collectively to amplify the voices of those who are not in this space. And when I, you know, mentioned and talked about, you know, the duty of care that comes out of collective struggle, of which Solidarity Economies is part of that. It's not only for for black folks. It is about joining up the struggles of a whole range of other communities that also similarly did not have voice. And it means then that our struggles are not separable from the struggles happening right there in Gaza. That Palestinian liberation and and an attentiveness to the sort of pain and suffering that ordinary people are experiencing has to be part of our struggle as well. We are in a moment where it is difficult to speak. Um, We are encouraged pushed a little. There's a McCarthyist movement at the moment to silence our voices. But we have a space and we have a duty. If we believe in an inclusive economy, then we have to believe that we must use our voices to speak on behalf of those who don't have the space. And that means linking through conversation, through intergenerational conversation, all struggles across time and space. So I spoke earlier on about looking back in history in order to look forward, which is actually part of a long tradition um, exemplified in the principle of Sankofa, which is a word in the tree language of Ghana to tell us that we have much to learn if we are able to remember our histories or remember histories in order to move forward. But we also have to link our struggles geographically and perhaps that's why I'm a geographer. But we have to recognize that our struggle, whatever wherever we are, is connected up with other ones. And there are moments when it is important for us to speak up, as in the current moment, with the sort of um ethnic cleansing, pactate system, and genocide that I would say feels very real when one watches the news, when one um watches the television, or pays attention to what is happening at the moment in the war between Israel and um, Hamas. And, And in that struggle, as a feminist, the focus is on everyday people, what that means in terms of suffering, and the inability to live one's best life. And that, to me, is part of our struggle. It's part of what being part of a solidarity economy asks us to do it's to join our struggles up for the liberation and the solidarities of many others and that includes racialized people all over the world be they dalits in india be they black folks in the united states or canada but also to make those connections with indigenous peoples who still find their lands being um dispossessed and destroyed And then to remember, which is the third part, so we link our struggles through time and through space, but the other part is to remember that it is not just us as humans alone, it is us as humans in struggle with more than human others, meaning that we have a duty also to the environment.
0: The relationship
1: that we have with the environment as
0: humans says a lot about how we live as people. And in the future, as we see the planet deteriorate, it's going to show how we treated the planet and how we cared about the planet. Um, And also speaking back to um, when you mentioned all our struggles are connected. It's such a strange time because... You know, social media, the news Allows us to see everything in like almost a hyper-reality And my generation, we grew up with the rise of technology So we're so used to seeing every type of life that's out there But it's so strange at the same time That this hyper-realistic and hyper access to basically anything you want at any time almost causes people to shut down from anything that isn't happening in their community or in their country. But it's so true what you said, all our struggles are connected. It, it's all connected through space and time, history, and it's about more than just race. And I, I want people to see that. I think it's really important to see people from all walks of life, be it academics or otherwise, um, using their voice, because we all have one. And I think when we see that representation in who speaks and why, it instills this idea in us that, hey, I could do it too. Anyone can do it. Everyone should do it. As we grow up, we quickly become acquainted with the fact that corruption and injustice runs the world. And right now, being so tolerated by the international community is the genocide and the heartbreak happening right now. We use our collective voice to call for a ceasefire, to spread information and news. I really truly appreciate your work, everyone's work, everyone everywhere that speaks out on social justice issues in any capacity because it's part of carrying that momentum that we need to solidify a future so safe, so secure, so equal that unfortunately it's it's a little bit difficult to imagine it right now. But let's try. If you had the magic wand What kind of feminist economic system do you propose would work in our future? I love
1: thinking big. (laughs) (laughs) let's, Let's think about that. I would love, if I could, for us to think of a world and work towards implementing it that understood that we all work. What we call work should also include the work of thinking expansively and, and innovatively and imagining futures, something that some, somehow we call leisure, and we don't think of it as any expended effort. But, but work is a huge thing. We all do it, and it all has value. And so I would love a world where we understood that work, whether it be paid or unpaid, or even cerebral imaginings, all has value, and that we should encourage every individual to be able to do that. How do we do that? We would do that by having an understanding that if everything we do has value, and we use the medium of money to survive, then we need to have a system where everyone has access to an income. And, you know, during the pandemic, pandemic at the very height of it, because the pandemic is not over. It is still with us, although we'd like to pretend it isn't. But at the, the very beginning of that pandemic, when we really didn't have a clue about, you know, whether we would survive as a species on this planet, when we didn't have a vaccine, people were dying, we didn't understand it. One of the things that took hold the set of ideas that had been around for years before, with no traction, and that was the idea of just a basic income. In actual fact, feminists had been arguing from the nineteen sixties and we needed a care income. The movement of wages for housework, you know, moved moved and started by the amazing activist that James told us, and and Caribbean activists like Andai told us that Wages is the way in which our economic system says where value is located. The wage comes to, to, to determine or to signal what we think has value to the expansion of the capitalist system. And that they were some of the first to point out But so many of us, primarily women, work And we work every day, and many women don't earn a wage, but it still has value to the system. In actual fact, even Karl Marx recognized that in his very early writings, but did very little more to understand the phenomena of what drives women to simply work to the betterment of their communities, their family members, without being paid. And so, if I could wave my magic wand, it would be for a system that recognized the value of all labor, all work, and that it would be understood that because it had lab, because it had value, everyone should have access to an income. Try and imagine a world where everyone had access to a basic income, whether you did. The work of showing people that you got up at nine and left and came back at five and worked an eight-hour day, which, of course, a lot of unpaid work is 24 hours a day. It's not even just eight hours. But if we have real value for all forms of work, and and I really want to put in here leisure as well, what we call leisure which is really the time that we imagine, imagine different things, we innovate, we think of ways of making the world better, then can you imagine what our, our economies could look like? Because people would have lives that, were, that gave them or afforded them the capacity for, for a, a degree of freedom that so few people have it would allow people to be more attentive to their health if they simply had a basic income, which was given freely, which was not with strings attached, but in recognition that in living and in engaging in community that you bring value to everything. What would that mean for the way in which we think about the world around us and all of the resources, you know, human and non-human and, you know, all other types of um, more than human. How how could we imagine a world where a basic income would facilitate looking after and caring for the planet as a whole? What would it mean if we had an income of that nature where we redistributed resources so that everyone had something to live on? So what would that mean for the way that we think about our relationships across generations, our relationships across geographic regions? Would we have levels of migration, people you know, risking life and limb to cross borders just for different possibility of survival? So my magic wand would probably start with thinking about the basic income, but that's a practicality. And I would say that if I also had a magic wand, I would get a I would try to have us think about a system that went beyond capitalism itself. Meaning how can we imagine a future where what we produce, what we share, what we exchange is not driven by the need to secure a profit. That in actual fact, we were, if we were always redistributing our resources, what would that mean? for how we proceeded on the planet, um, that would be the magic wand. And I think if I were to be able to imagine and exercise that magic wand practically through the idea of um, a basic income or a care income, as some people call it, or to do away with the whole system of commodities and commodity exchange for profit, well, what would that mean also then for how we live with each other. And that would be, I think, an opening for all sorts of possibilities across this planet. Part of that would mean that maybe we would spend more time thinking about moving off of fossil fuels, that we would actually put resources towards that in a way that we don't at the moment. Maybe we would use some of that redistribution of wealth to educate more people. We would have more people who would have the ability to think about ways in which we might live in the future on a planet that is going to simply be hotter. I think we've passed the stage of thinking that we can mitigate all of the effects of climate change. We would be able to focus on the things that allow us in harmony with our environments to survive, rather than dividing the spoils, fighting with each other, bombing each other, capturing land, holding onto it, you know, those mining and and destroying nature. Or as we watch when we look at what's happening in Gaza, you know, the whole ecocide, the environmental costs of this war, we haven't even begun to think about what that means. And that also includes the war in Ukraine, the kind of environmental damage that we all need to live with in the future. So yes, my magic wand would have a practical element and a hopeful element. One raised around um, an income that would allow all sorts of possibilities for every living person, but also to th- be able to think more expansively about what alternative economies could look like and to move away from the one that we have at the moment, which is so, which is so embedded in a notion of of extractivism that is very hard to see how it could be redeemed.
0: Right, thank you. I I agree with that. I'm really, I think as a system, capitalism is so extreme in how it says, no money is the most important thing, no extracting resources is is the most important thing. It really neglects what we need as people and kind of makes us feel like almost like just little obedient machines or workers and, it, and a lot of people feel like they have to commit their whole life just to trying to survive and the system is just really not set up to support um your mental well-being your physical well-being people really see themselves deteriorate in ways other than like aging or or normal capacity that a human would just because they have to keep up with something that is not really made for their benefit And that's why I agree that I don't think capitalism is all that redeemable just in its nature I just think innately it doesn't support values of reciprocity or care or community you know what I mean it's just very about an individual person trying to secure their riches and maybe you share it with your family if anyone and kind of just you know trying to get away on a yacht somewhere you know what I mean that's like the ultimate (laughs) capitalist dream just like being a millionaire billionaire but I don't believe that I don't think that. everything in the world is about money because at the end of the day what do you do with millions of dollars and a planet that you can't save anymore and people that you can't help you know I just don't think that it's I think that we forget that we learned the values of capitalism. I love the picture that you just painted for us. If I were to design a feminist economic system, I would definitely take a similar approach. And I think the most important idea for me is, as we're imagining recreating society from scratch, I would want to imagine the economic and procedural structures from every level, you know, community, national, up to global, that we would need to be in place to secure what Whatever we create on top I really like the idea of international law but as I grew up I started to realize it's not really a thing there's not really a real thing as international law, it's more international suggestions which I'm seeing more and more on the news these days and I think that it's easy to forget as an international community we didn't start out with things like the United uh, Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, the International Court of Justice. These institutions were created by those who already had power after several ugly centuries of history that's why we need to dig a little bit into our past in order to build the foundation of our future, kind of like you were saying earlier. You know, start having these conversations that mean closing the gap in the knowledge between different generations, different ways of thinking, like you and I are doing right now. I really believe that we need to do everything we can to push for inclusion, inclusive academia, inclusive businesses, societies, and of course, inclusive economies. How do you see yourself... Further evolving the work that you do, and what to you is the most important things that all our listeners should remember from you today.
1: Okay, so I think we're we're in an era that is unprecedented. Like mm-hmm. we at news as it's happening, we have we have scenes of things that we would never have seen before if you had lived at the era of the First World War you know you really wouldn't have been seeing scenes of people being dislocated or killed like we, we just we see a lot more mm-hmm. you know i just think also for example of how quickly people pull their cell phones out and, and sometimes you're able to watch things because of the power of community filming and sharing and uploading that we never had before But at the same time, as we are filled with an unprecedented set of images, ideas that the technology itself allows, it allows us to cherry pick what we want to view, what we want to see, what we want to listen to. And sometimes we miss a collective conversation across a broader community than just the small community of our friends. And that is a problem. If we look back at history, particularly for Black communities that I looked at, we always spoke with each other just as you and I are doing. We, we sat, we talked, we read together. You know, in the 1960s, there's such a long history of study circles or what Walter Rodney would have called groundings or Erastafarians call it reasoning. But people would sit and talk, make sense of the world in which they, they live. I think at the moment, I am seeing some amazing young people Really amazing young people who are out there, they're on some forms of media, but they're trying to to take a stand, you know, ask some questions about the world they live in, shake things up. But what we also need is an intergenerational set of conversations, because sometimes those conversations stay with a particular small group. and 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 through a small medium. So all the people who don't use Twitter will never know what what's being said. You know, some people utilize the news media and the television or the newspapers. So in terms of thinking about a future and building more inclusive economies, you know, those of us who can use multiple media to actually have a message to call people together physically in the same place as well as virtually. These kind of cross-cutting conversations will become the template for how we collectively make demands, how we collectively have a voice, how we collectively make the solidarities that maybe individual community groups are doing or small groups make to scale that up, to make that bigger and to make those who actually hold a lot more power, our governments, for example, our municipalities, share of collective voices. And that's really possible through the conversation. And so, you know, I'm glad you're doing this podcast. I think that's really amazing. I also hope that, you know, your podcast and the this work come together in a way that expand a collectivity, a group of people who come together at different points on different issues, perhaps, and move on to others. There's so many issues in the world that, that really require the coming together of people with a voice. At the moment, we hear one, or we'll hear two, you know, prominent things. For example, um, during the summer of 2020, the the death of George Floyd galvanized us in a way that I have not seen ever, really, in terms of a global community paying attention to an injustice and, and what it told us about a history of injustice. How do we do that for all sorts of it's other issues, some of which never make it to the news? So, our job is to see how, through conversation, we identify what are issues that may not make it to the news, you know, may not make it to um, someone's camera and shown on the, the internet. It, it may be something that is far more local, but how do we have a system of being together in community and reading together in community, looking back and going forward. My sense is that young people have a real edge on knowing how to do things virtually, how to do this through social media to have your voice heard. Older people know how to sit with each other and talk. How do we get these two things together? How do we share our stories together in a way that helps us across generations to work united in one voice? That is the challenge. It's a challenge that I think that that is the possibility as well. Thank
0: you. I th- I agree. I think it's so much more than a possibility. I think that it's a reality. You know, you and I are working on it right now. I can see it only, you know, increasing in its validity to other people, to, you know, the international community um, and the way that we designate attention to social issues. I think being able to, it's the same idea as working collectively, you know, being able to pool the way that we work, the way that we think, um, the way we inspire inspire each other um, into like a cross-generational experience, I think that could really change everything. Thank you so much for leaving us on that powerful note. I think we need to remember the impact of being on the right side of history and history in the making. The impact of not being so neutral anymore and making it part of us to be part of something that seeks to make the world a better place. It all starts with asking yourself, what do you care about? You can't let the answer to that be silence. Thank you for being our guest, Dr. Mullings, and this concludes our conversation on the Diverse Economies for Youth podcast. All of our thanks to Dr. Beverly Mullings for sharing her wisdom on the practicality and potential behind inching closer to inclusive economies over extractive world systems each and every day. And of course, thank you to her for her continued dedication to thriving alongside the Dice Collective. To keep thinking with us, send us any questions, comments, or ideas you might have at Africana underscore economies on Instagram and Facebook and at Africana Economy on Twitter. The Diverse Economies for Youth podcast is made by youth for youth and made possible by funding from the Canada Research Chair for Africana Development and Feminist Political Economies at the University of Toronto Scarborough. I'm your host, Serena Bahadur, and next month we'll have a new episode of our podcast where we learn how to create a world that treats us as people instead of as prophets. Thank you for listening and until next time.